Hello and welcome to the Prescription for Biotech podcast, where we explore the changing healthcare delivery landscape to focus on how biotechnology companies should be evolving their launch capabilities to ensure patient access to innovative new therapies. I'm your host and producer, Chris Lidley. In this episode, we're gonna talk about new cell and gene therapy modalities, which are expected to drive a significant number of new launches in the next decade. While the promise of gene and cell therapy research has been discussed for decades, we are now at the point where many clinical development programs are advancing to later stages or even approval. In fact, we're sitting here today, just uh, days after the abstracts were released for ASCO 2020, we're seeing a lot of exciting new cell and gene therapy uh, data that's gonna be presented next month on virtual ASCO. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about that in, the, in, the, in this episode. While these programs could lead to a new generation of therapies targeting significant areas of unmet need, they do present entirely new approaches to treatment that will also call for new levels of innovation and pricing and drug access strategies too. Our guest today is Michael Amoroso. Michael is an experienced and thoughtful executive leader in the life sciences space. He has an extensive background in the oncology therapy area. In fact, Michael led commercial teams at, the, at one of the leading biotech companies, Celgene, and was head of Americas at Eastsi, and most recently has moved on from his role as world commercial head and chief commercial officer of Kite Pharma, which is, of course, now part of Gilead. He has either worked in the small molecule, biologic, or cell and gene therapy space for the last 20 plus years, and I'm excited to have him on the episode to pick his brain on the state of the industry. And I'll be looking to get his insights on a number of important topics related to these new personalized medicines. So, Michael, you and I had the chance, we sort of grew up together in our formative years at Sanofi Aventis. So, well, it was Sanofi and then Aventis, the two companies merged in the um, mid 2000s. And that was the era of mega brands. And, you know, we had the pleasure of working on Eloxetin and Taxotere, which were blockbusters. So, so, so tell me, Tell all of us, Mike, what have you been up to? I'm sure you've had a little more time recently to spend with family. Well, Chris, it's great to see you. So when, uh, thanks for having me. When you, uh, when you offered the opportunity, I just thought it was a great, great uh, time to connect. Um, you, we, we are in a very thoughtful pause shutdown, so I hope you and your family are safe. I hope all our listeners are, uh, are safe also and kind of uh, you know, uh, not going too stir crazy. Um, it'll be a, an interesting time even going forward in medicine and pharmaceutical operations. I've, uh, I've been spending a little time, a little time with family, not exactly the same, maybe a little more than I thought as, as we can't, can't leave the house too much. I'm, I'm over in Los Angeles, um, you know, and, uh, we, uh, we're doing okay. So, um, kind of been out for about a quarter now and, uh, catching my breath a little bit, looking at, uh, some, some different initiatives out there, some kind of smaller startups and, uh, Real interested in staying in, the, in, in an area of magnitude and, and really titanic therapeutic indexes. And I think that's what you see from the selling therapies. It's, it, it is, I think you said it great, it's a really exciting time over the last decade. And you can only kind of fast forward and think about what that means for patient care going forward. So again, excited to be with you. It's, it's great. We, we, we did grow up together at Santa Fe where we got some really great training. Um, the mega brands, as you said, uh, very blessed that I got to work on those and work with some great leaders. Uh, learned a lot from people like yourself, and uh, thanks for having me today. Sure, Michael. I mean, it's going to be interesting because uh, since you and I worked on on these mega brands, 
you know, the whole commercial model was different for those, for those products. So I know we'll, we're going to be sort of comparing and contrasting. We'll be talking about some of those juxtapositions here later as we talk about these personalized therapies, which require, in many cases, a, a new approach. Just a quick disclaimer before we move forward. I just want to note that Michael today is representing himself only, and his opinions and recommendations are his own and not based on any specific company or experience within those companies. So it's been an exciting couple of years. Back in 2017, the first gene therapy was approved um, with Luxterna by Spark Therapeutics. And Luxterna is a one-time gene therapy treatment used to improve vision in patients with vision loss due to inherited retinal disease. That same year, the FDA also approved the use of Kimraya from Novartis and also uh, Yescarta from Kite Pharmaceuticals for the treatment of various uh, blood disorders or hematologic malignancies, uh, ALL and so forth, and um, large B-cell lymphoma. So these were the first ever CAR-T therapies, which we'll be talking more about. Michael, I think, how is the commercial model for these gene and cell therapies different from other innovative medicines like those that we've worked on before, the biologics or targeted therapies or even chemotherapies? How is it different? Yeah, Chris, I think it's uh, that, that's a that's a loaded question we could talk all day about, right? But, uh, you know, I think first and foremost, if you just think about how we did R&D classically, we lived in the world of empiricism, right? There was a number needed to treat. We lived in empiricism, uh, risk-benefit ratios. Um, you know, I think as you look at gene-targeted therapies, you look at cell therapies of the proven antigens like CD19, I think you said it well, in, in B-cell malignancies or BCMA uh, branching over in myeloma. I think first and foremost, you have a much higher clinical probability of success. Uh, so I think you're seeing a faster track to, uh, to regulatory uh, approvals around the world. Uh, that being said, regulators are learning how to deal with, I think there's gene and cell therapies, and then I think you talk about gene and cell therapies have to, the personalized nature. And I think that's always a, a very interesting CMC challenge for, for regulators. I think we're continuing to learn together. I've heard the analogy that, you know, this, this wave of pharma moving on from small molecules and biologics to personalized therapy. We're really building the plane as we fly. And I think, Chris, it is a great analogy. You kind of see the cartoon figure, but I think it is a great analogy. We're learning. And I would say as an industry, you know, maybe we know 20% with 80% to go. Uh, I think it's exciting time. You mentioned some of the companies that have brought wonderful solutions for patients at the highest need. Uh, I think you see, you know, two, 300 more uh, uh, smaller players who are getting into this space. And Chris, I think you take a step back and you say, why, right? If it's such a complex space, why are so many people in this area? And I think you have proven antigens and you're, you're looking at in some, in some spaces, one time instead of chronic care, one time therapeutics that can really change and give long lasting outcomes. Dare I say, cure some diseases. At the end of the day, that's an exciting thing. You know, you think about the system for a cancer patient or for the overall system, you mentioned payers before, or even physicians, it has been chronic care. It has been chronic care. And I think what we've done, if you look at the evolution of cancer, I think if you start with even chemotherapy and targeted therapy, I think what we did is moved the outcome line out a bit, you know, and, and obviously we treat for outliers. We've had some patients in earlier settings that we've been able to cure in early cancer with small molecules, biologics. But for the most part, chemotherapy delayed the inevitable. I think the next advent, if you will, for me in cancer care was the checkpoint inhibitors. 
and we found this kind of big world of IO and immuno-oncology. And I started in melanoma, which was a disease we know that could clear itself from our, you know, our IL-2 days. But we, 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 we then saw, you know, maybe if you will, across Chris, maybe one out of five patients started to get these long, prolonged tails from, again, chronic therapy across checkpoints. And I used to see with the advent of T-cell therapy, uh, CAR T therapy, if you will, and some of the gene therapy, you know, in hematologic malignancies, you're looking at long outcomes, um, you know, of 40, 50% of patients. So I think it's an exciting time to give patients potentially one-time therapy that could hopefully and potentially cure their disease. Yeah, Michael, I think um, just you raised some good points. I think um, just, just to sort of set up some of the additional discussion and questions we'll be getting to in a moment. Maybe if we could just address, you know, a lot of what I've observed uh, from the public domain around, um, you know, Novartis and Kite's kind of um, commercialization of those CAR T therapies. There's significant challenges for commercialization. It's much different than launching a chemotherapy or a targeted therapy product. You know, there's turnaround times of you know up to two weeks and so forth. What, what sort of, what challenges or what special considerations are there in commercializing these types of cell therapies? Yeah, Chris, I think, you know, as you said, I mean, we, we've read for a while now in the public domain from companies like Novartis, companies from Kite. Um, when you're making personalized therapy, let's just think through the chain and flow of classic product, Chris. Classic small molecule was sitting at the wholesale, right? And the physician would order, and now that triggers demand. In this scenario, there is no wholesale. It takes them out of the equation. So you think of your classic pharmaceutical operations, having sales reps, MSLs. Uh, these are, I think these are still, interaction with the customer, I think, is still very, very necessary. But I think there's unique roles, right? You have, um, you have pharmaceutical order. You have products that are made to order. So you now have customers who are interfacing with companies' manufacturing departments on a daily basis. The typical vertical integrated model, right? They used to just see their sales rep, their MSL, and maybe a little bit of the interface of the headquarters. Now, you quality control, CMC, these people are part of daily interactions with customers. I think, Chris, if you look at the external ecosystem, to me, that's really important. Regulators are learning how to grade these therapies, right? You have single on trials, not through, you know, you see a lot of these trials starting in a very nascent setting of salvage setting. What is, what is the level of evidence they need? How do they look at uh, you know, batch variability in, in a personalized product? You know, how, how regulators look at this? Uh, think about it. Payer systems around the world are set up for continuous chronic care. They're not set up for one-time cancer therapies. Uh, so I think it's, it really does turn the model as we know it on its head. And I think it's humbling. I think we're, we're, we're learning together. Um, but, I, you know, I take a step back. Anytime you have an autologous, personalized therapy, Chris, for a human being, I think we saw Dendrion as an example of that, right? Uh, you know, the, you have chain of custody of cells that you're matching to a patient. There's timelines of, you know, being able, communication has to be at the highest level. Where, where are our patient cells? When are they ready to come back to the customer to make sure these, these patients are getting infused? So when you think of the classic pharmaceutical model, whether it be a biologic, you know, a Heceptin, a Vastin, Rituxin, or a small molecule, you mentioned a Taxotere and a Loxetin before, 
these things were, were, were not made to order. They were sitting on the shelves of a wholesaler and they could easily be flown, you know, distributed in the flow to the customer at, at the patient's demand, right? So I think that if you just think about the logistics that go into that, uh, the, the, the level of communication needed, I think it's a huge ask of, of systems that are, are, to be fair, nascent in the space. We've been in pharma a long time, but we've not been in, and when I say we, I mean collective as industry, no one company. We've not been in personalized care like this, except for the last years. So I think it's, it, it, it adds a complexity, Chris. Um, you know, uh, obviously, again, in the public domain, you see a lot of these therapies, whether it's gene therapies, cell therapies, or high-cost therapies. So I think payers are trying to figure out how do you get access to a broad amount of human beings? What does the setting of care look like, Chris? Can they be delivered in all areas that oncolytics are delivered today? Or is there special areas of care? And I think you see a lot of these gene and cell therapies are delivered in the first wave here across companies, across products, across diseases in very academic settings as they monitor you know, different side effects than they've ever seen before. You know, so I know I gave you a lot there. I'll stop yeah. for a minute. No, that's good. Again, it's, it's, it's a personalized nature that adds a level of complexity we've never before seen. Sure. No, no. Thanks for, for that great overview. And we'll, we'll dig deeper here in a little into a couple of these uh, today. I mean, for one thing, you mentioned in particular the, 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 the fact that current reimbursement models in general, they don't accommodate many of the unique factors that are common among gene and cell therapies. And, you know, we're talking about typically much smaller patient populations and shorter treatment windows. The one-time, you know, um, one-time treatment with potentially curative efficacy. So there's these high upfront costs. Um, and sometimes, though, there's lack of long-term data and follow-up with many of these treatments. So we're still learning a lot about them. So how do you see the future evolving to ensure that we have equitable access to many of these gene and cell therapies? We know that, for, for example, around the world, the structure and implementation of health technology assessments may require new assessments of value. What are some of the approaches you think you will need to evolve going forward to ensure equitable access, pricing, and reimbursement for these cell and gene therapies? You know, for example, I mean, we think about, I mean, Luxterna, uh, the launch of Luxterna, Spark Therapeutics took some very innovative approaches there you know, uh, around value-based contracting, amortized payments, and carve-outs. Where do you see that, what are the trends here? What do you, how do you see the market evolving? Yeah, Chris, I think it's a great question, right? So I think you, you mentioned something first and foremost. HTAs, uh, you know, for our listeners, different health technology assessments, how you kind of assess a drug in a space, and it's very different by countries around the world. Uh, U.S. is a little bit more of a free capitalistic entrepreneur, entrepreneurial system. But if I was to kind of just lump markets, Chris, around the world, I think about comparative effectiveness markets, the ones that are most common, maybe Germany and France. And these are very big on, you know, how much better are you versus the prior standard of care? And they're very overall survival focused across cancers, right? I think you look at uh, cost utility markets or cost effectiveness markets, the, one of the most famous being NICE in the UK. And these really look at, um, you know, what is... What is, the, what, is, what is a patient life year worth and how are we restoring them to normalcy to be a contributing member of society? And then I think you have other markets that are a little more, if you will, cash constrained, right? I think about the Southern European markets. We call these budget impact markets where you can do an HTA and come out with what they think is fair price, but then they have to make trade-offs between therapies they can offer. So Chris, I think I would start with what you said. You, you mentioned a word that really means a lot to me. One of the reasons I wanted to come on today. 
the goal should be to sit on the same side of the table with the governments around the world. Look at what we're going through with COVID. You know, look at, obviously, uh, you know, I commend Gilead of what they've done of the donations of remdesivir for COVID-19. The goal here should be to get as many therapies to patients afflicted as possible, right? Of course, this is pharmaceutical industry, biotech industry, Chris, is not a not-for-profit industry. That's a good thing, right? Sometimes we don't read those press clippings in in the newspapers, right? Because we tell a piece of the story. But having a for-profit business model is super important for the cycle of innovation to put money, more money back into research and development. So you can look at these antiviral drugs, for example, like a remdesivir, when the world is in such a tremendous need. I don't think, Chris, in our lifetime, we've seen a greater need, right? Mm-hmm. So, That's right. you know, for me, I think it's a very unique thing that I'll just start with the first. You think about every model of the world business, Chris. If I want to buy the iPod, this is the best example I have at the time. I go to the Apple store, or at least I used to be able to go out of my house and go to the Apple store. I look at the iPod that I like most or the cell phone I like most, I look at the cost of it, and I get to assess what kind of features it has and what's it worth to me, the customer. And then I go up to the counter and I pay for it, right? And then if you think about it, there's some level of a guarantee on that product. If two days later, minus me dropping it, if it just stops working functionally, there's some guarantee of that product. So if you think about the pharmaceutical industry for a minute, I call it sometimes the the um, the dysfunctional triad, or let's hope it becomes the functional triad, right? You have a healthcare provider, the doctor usually, who has the information asymmetry in the world to treat diseases and decide what should be treated. You have the patient who is the recipient, they're the ultimate customer, and they have the greatest information asymmetry need, right? They, they know the least, if you will, in most cases, versus some of the specialized parties who are making decisions for their life. And then ultimately now, that interaction for care now has a a different person who's paying, right? You have the payer, a third party, whether it's private or public in the US and the other systems around the world, mostly public, right? So when you think about that, Chris, what business model in the world has those try, that that triad, those challenges, right? I call it, you know, sometimes it's either the unhappy or hopefully the functional triangle. So when you think of novel therapies that could be one time, when you think of some of these that have high labor to try to even make personalized care that could high have, you know, we see some of the uh, wholesale, the, the public list prices um, that are higher cost than maybe a classic chemotherapy round that we've seen over the last 20 years. I think you need to say, how have we been paying for it? Does that work? And if the ultimate goal is to get more therapy to more human beings in need, let's not be so stagnant by process. Let's not let the tail wag the dog. Let's have the dog wag the tail. So some of the things you've seen at, over the last years, Chris, I know how you keep up on this. If you've gone to the healthcare conferences around the world like we both have, uh, you've seen different regulatory approaches. You've seen different talks about manufacturing because of personalized therapies. And then you've seen the other topic that you just brought up. How do we pay for these therapies? And I think you've seen examples. You mentioned some of the companies earlier on interesting models that I've obviously read about like yourself, you see things like pay for performance. You see things like risk sharing. You know, these go back to that example, if you will, of the person buying the iPod over the counter, some level of guarantee. What we really mean by risk sharing, guys, is does the product have one cost or is it different cost based on the different therapeutic index a patient gets? And I think those are some of the real novel, cool things I've read about in the public domain. Uh, I think what you saw with Spark a little bit or even Bluebird was in the public domain was payment installments, 
you know, Chris, we talked about some of the countries around the world that are more cash constrained. Let's say you agree the price should be X for a patient. Well, maybe they can't pay it all at once for optimal access. So can the pharma companies be more flexible and, and, and maybe they could pay over time the way human beings pay their mortgage. We don't pay for our household at one time, right? So, um, you know, I think these are really interesting approaches uh, that, that, that are evolving. You know, I'm reading about them the same way you are, right? But Chris, I think the ultimate comment I'd make here is, for a long time, I felt like the pharma industry was always looked at as being on the other side of the table as the payer. And that's not good for patients. That's not good for human beings. We're on the same side here of trying to get as many novel, groundbreaking, real, really monumental therapeutic index products, not incremental, monumental products that change the quality of a patient's life, quality and quantity. We got to sit on the same side of the table as these governments. And whatever the novel pathways need to be, there's got to be give and take. That's my feedback. That would be my advice, my opinion to pharma companies, to governments around the world, only together and being willing to be creative do I think we have an ability to get to more human beings. And I'm real passionate about that. You know, as I look at my next endeavor, I want to be in a setting, I want to be in a culture where I can help shape that. Yeah, Michael, I know that's really important to you as it is to me. And that's why I thank you for taking the time to talk about it. There's a lot of folks who don't want to go near this topic because it is so polarizing and so, um, you know, it's been politicized in the, in the literature and, and by many around the world. Um, glad to see, though, that the industry is making steps toward it. Again, we're still very early in the commercialization of many of these new therapies that will benefit so many patients. You mentioned a couple of things, too, around manufacturing. I think that over the last three years ago, since the launch of these of the first two CAR-Ts and, and gene therapies uh, with Luxterna, we've been reading a lot about challenges in manufacturing of cell and gene therapies. They, they present a number of complex logistical challenges that can potentially jeopardize safety or limit patient access if, they're not, if it's not managed well. Whether the products are autologous or allogeneic in nature, we need to understand transportation, distribution. You mentioned chain of custody. You know, the storage requirements, these you know, need to be refrigerated. There's a lot of complex logistics here. Uh, with CAR T therapy in particular, a great deal of precision is required, and any delays in the process are, you know, could be unacceptable for, for the patient. So these personalized therapies have complex supply chains and are expensive to produce. Touched on some of them, but but why is that? Yeah, Chris. You know, right before we go to the manufacturing question for one moment, I just wanted to finish one thought I had that came to me. Sure. Um, you know, we talked about back back on the on on, on getting more access to human beings. You yeah. Know, a word you used before is value, right? And we we use this word, we hear this word, first we go to, but but I think we're afraid to define it sometimes, right? You know, Chris, if, if we obviously have, we need to be evidence based. And we need to look at the total cost of care of a patient with disease X. We need to look at what therapeutics they're getting today. And I think it puts some pressure on the pharmaceutical company to say, we're not looking for increment. The payer should be tough there. We don't want to bring just increment. We want monumental advancement. Now, I know that's easier said than done. But, if, but Chris, if we start rewarding monumental advancement, meaning we're in disease X, the median survival is a year. If we find a new therapeutic that gives three years, four years, five years. Now you're three, four, 500% better. You already have a cost of care, Chris, for the patient with disease X that's in the market. So we, mm -hmm. we should put the facts on the table. We shouldn't be uncomfortable to talk about this. And we should say, look, what are we willing to pay for innovation? 
knowing there's a baseline and knowing the goal is to get to this many patients with the epidemiology of the disease. And I think both parties got to be willing to give there. I think the pressure we'll put on pharma is to have str more stringent go and no-go hurdles on the R&D. No more 5-10% improvements. You know, maybe it'll, you'll make trade-off decisions to only move programs forward when it's 50, 75, 100% improvements. So, Chris, you mentioned that fact, and I just wanted to come back to it because people are scared to have these conversations. I don't know why. I mean, look, it is a for-profit business. It puts a ton of money back into innovation and R&D, and, and that cycle is healthy for human beings. That's how we've changed the outcomes of cancer and other diseases. So I think we have to stop being afraid to touch the topic, and we just need to be fact-based and evidence-based. So, Chris, I'll leave that topic alone. You know, you can see my passion on it, but I'll move over to your question now on manufacturing. So, you know, I think when you talk about personalized therapies, you know, small molecules were, were uh, you know, uh, pills in a box, and they were less expensive to make, right? And then we saw the advancement of biologics. And for a while, that was, that was a more expensive cost of goods to make. And it took a while to master that. And I think a lot of companies have done that now, where you're looking at yield, how much yield of product can you get from your active ingredients? With personalized therapy, remember, for those out there, you're taking, uh, you're, you're literally taking cells from a human being, and you're re-engineering DNA and you're making it just for that human brain being and bringing it back to them. So first and foremost, I think it's, we know from what we've heard from the manufacturing experts, it's laborious. Chris, you spoke about some of the time it takes, you know, two, three, four weeks across diseases, across companies. We've read it again in the public domain to get these therapies back to patients. Uh, you know, Chris, first and foremost, if you look at cancer care, some of these bad diseases, these patients are on the clock. They don't have time to wait. So you love the therapeutic index you're seeing from some of these products, but you obviously want to get these products to patients faster because in some of these diseases, if you can't identify them soon enough, we have to worry about what can the patient wait for a product, right? Will they meet their demise? The next thing I would say to you is the process today is very manual as we know it, as we've read. It's laborious. It requires a good amount of people involved in this. And I think, you know, that's something that adds to time. That's something that's always going to add to cost. So if the goal is to get these therapies to human beings faster, I think you started to mention autologous, which is that personalized therapy, to allogeneic. And again, the way I would describe allogeneic to some of our listeners not in the space, this is a healthy donor who's donating a cell. And now you're making a yield of product, not per person, off of a healthy donor. So right away, Chris, I liken it more to a biologic. So it's not as laborious. It drives costs down quite a bit versus make for order per person. And I think speed to patient would be a lot less, uh, a lot less complex. And of course, that's super important. So, you know, you mentioned chain of custody of cells. Let's just make sure everyone knows what that is. You wouldn't have that with a healthy donor product. You have that when you're using Jane Smith's cell to make sure you're making Jane Smith's product to bring it back to Jane Smith. That level of complexity, if you go from autologous which is synonymous with personalized therapy, to allogeneic would go away. And Chris, you mentioned ASCO, which is going to be pretty cool. Because, By the way, I've been doing virtual ASCO for a lot of years because we're in meetings all day and I have to <laughs> home at night and look yeah. at midnight to see what the data was. Yeah. But you know, this year I'm excited to see the data. And we just saw uh, one of the allogeneic companies, Allogene, 
announce uh, an abstract today where some of the efficacy and safety data looks encouraging, uh, you know, in B-cell malignancy. So I'm excited as the rest of the field to look and see what that looks like. It seems like in some of these uh, next generation cell therapies, uh, the technologies, you know, there's a lot of discussion around viral, non-viral vectors that try to do some of the things you talk about, by increasing yield and decreasing COGS. But uh, these off-the-shelf solutions seem like there's a lot of interest, a lot of companies sort of really actively, there's a lot of investment in uh, new companies kind of pursuing off-the-shelf solutions. Allergene is one yeah. example, right? Yeah, Chris, I think the biggies for me are back to that therapeutic index when I'm always talking about a real robust uh, efficacy and safety profile and, of course, dosing, right? Um, you know, the biggie for me on the allogeneic products will be, do we see the same level of durable responses, you know, those long outcomes, tails, there again, I say cure, as we see with using per person cells to make their product? That's obviously a major question in all the scientists' minds. I think um, the other thing that we're all anxiously waiting to see is, you know, your graft versus host disease, like you see in an allogeneic transplant. When you have a healthy donor and you're not using the same cell from the human being, you're bringing it back to, will there be a safety and immune response of the body that rejects that product? And that was what was interesting to me today. You know, we haven't seen data yet, but it looked like early signs of graft versus host and host versus graft uh, were encouraging uh, with the first aloe product that we're going to see here coming up. At, uh, at ASCO. Excited to see it. Those are the big questions of the allogeneic products. But you're right, Chris, it makes accessibility to a human being, to speed to a human being, much faster if that product is sitting on the shelf like a biologic today, a receptin, a rituxin, right, in, in the Vastin, any of your monoclonal antibodies. So, yeah, you're, you know, we touched on a couple of things um, in our discussion today. And I think one thing is clear that the commercialization model for these personalized medicines require high-touch services throughout the patient journey. And this will be key to address many of the challenges um, that we've talked about today. And so a comprehensive portfolio of patient support services will be needed across the life cycle of the products. And my concern is that many of these smaller biotech companies often lack the resources and scale to implement them. I mean, there have been many surveys shown that even with regular like targeted therapies, many Small biotech companies wait too long uh, to develop these capabilities. Um, you know, we've been so trained as in the industry to kind of wait for a regulatory endpoint before we start scrambling to build up a launch plan. So, in terms of this organizational readiness, Michael, I mean, for an early stage biotech company developing an innovative cell therapy, what types of capabilities and organizational processes need to be developed? prior to approval to ensure a successful launch of these very complex products? Yeah, Chris, you know, I'll take this question from a standpoint of, I would even compare, you know, today, 2020, and who knows what post-COVID-19 looks like. That adds a level of complexity of what is pharmaceutical operations going forward the next one, two, and three years. You talked about me taking a little time with family. You know, I thought I would probably be on a beach in Hawaii for, for about six months before I get back at it. But, you know, I never wanted to get more back at the, at the table now because obviously, no, I don't have a crystal ball, Chris, and I don't know all the answers, but there's going to be a lot of 
um, trial and error and thinking about how we run all of our operations. And I don't know that we're ever going back to the exact model we lived in pre-COVID-19, right? And as our customers treat patients different, you know, I had to go to an office today to an orthopedic. It was my first time out. There was a much different process of letting patients in, no waiting rooms, no people at front desks. So as our customers evolve and change, we in the life sciences industry have to change and make sure we're adapting and, and melding ourselves to meet their needs. So you mentioned commercialization. And, and again, I'm a commercial guy who doesn't believe in commercial strategy. I believe in a commercialization strategy. And that means all functions of an organization compliantly contribute to kind of the same song script. And there's a real choreographed nature from, as you've always heard, bench to bedside that I think is super important from clinical research and development all the way through commercial operations. So Chris, first I would say, if you just go away from personalized therapy for a minute, even small molecules, biologics, or cell and gene therapy. I think in the 80s and 90s, we were in the share of voice wars. And what that meant was more people, more money invested, more programs, more sales reps, more results, right? And I think you saw some incredible successes of companies like Pfizer, Merck. These were, you know, the gold standard, right? And I think, Chris, what changed? All the primary care diseases, as we talk about, were around, right? There was antibiotics in the marketplace that weren't generic yet. There was osteoporosis meds, antihistamines, right? Uh, birth control medications. Everybody was able to get a piece of the pie. And I don't in any way want to say any of these companies were average, but everybody got their piece with a share of voice. You know, I, I often, Chris, my visual is, remember the game, I might be dating myself to some of the millennials, the trivial pursuit pie, where everyone kind of got their piece of the pie, right? And then you think about what changed in industry. Well, in the 2000s, in the last 20 years, the primary care world, as we once called it, really genericized. And if you think about all those companies, they're competing in a couple of the same highways now. They're not as spread out. So you have more players in the same space. And I think I, I call it we're competing in the specialized markets now. Markets like that are chronic, where we haven't had an answer, a perfect answer, cancer, autoimmune diseases right? RA, uh, Crohn's, uh, you know, some of these diseases, um, you look at uh, central nervous system disorders, maybe autoimmune of, of MS and, and neuro, immunology, infectious disease. All the cars are on the same road of these chronic diseases that we haven't given the ultimate cure yet to patients. So Chris, my answer first and foremost, you said the word capability. I think it calls on the pharma company to be better. I say we're now in uh, not the share of voice world anymore. We're in the quality of voice competition. And for me, the day of starting a launch 12 to 18 months in advance, phase two's done. You haven't even interfaced with your ClinDev team. And now phase three data is coming and you start to first show the TPP or the actual data to a commercial team. You know you're ready to go. I understand why pharma companies historically hedged on building bottom line costs until you knew you had some successful data. But Chris, I would argue the passage and the barrier to entry to be successful is much harder. And I, the first, my, my opinion and my advice is there's a small cost to doing business or a large cost that you have to ramp up two, three years in advance. Today, I wanna see my commercial people, regardless of whether it's a cell therapy or a small molecule, sitting at the table with the project teams, with their ClinDev, with their regulatory, right, with their medical affairs partners, because it's not only about regulatory affairs hurdles in the FDA or EMA or Japan with the PMDA, 
That's table stakes today. It's what, what endpoints do I need in my trials? What PROs to make sure I'm thinking about reimbursement in Germany and France versus Spain, Italy, versus the US. So you need commercial people looking at TPPs, Chris, in my opinion, when you're in phase two. And, and if you're gonna launch today, you need to be interfacing with your external customers. Who is that, Chris? That's not just the KOL anymore. That's regulatory authorities. That's advocacy groups. That's investor relations. All of these groups, you need to be understanding what is the needs of the market and starting to make sure your product really is being held to that rigor, that the TPP meets the disease hurdle, if you will, of not being a me too. So I just think you need resources, Chris. You need your, your external stakeholders involved sooner. That would be a big, a big one for me. And you know, I, I've worked on a, a good amount of companies now, and I think every company, and I've, I've kind of watched and admired some other companies, I still think most companies are, are hiring and building their operational capabilities a little late. You know, and, I, and, I, and I'd like to see us not only look at the cost of a launch as the cost of a pivotal trial, but the way to appropriately resource the operational needs and people to make and realize the greatest potential and the greatest access to human beings to these products. Yeah, it's interesting, Michael. You you know, I, I agree with you, and not only me. I mean, but you know, it, you know, large consultancies like McKinsey and others have done studies showing that you know uh, companies often plan and start get started too late. And you know that you mentioned the value discussion earlier. You know, unfortunately, even today, many times um, the sort of the PROs and the evidence generation required to support a real value proposition oftentimes don't even start till after launch. The other concern is that. I know that recently I saw too that the FDA is really reforming and really showing a willingness to work with the biotech biotech industry to fast track these individualized personalized medicines. You know, look, even with the checkpoint inhibitors, they most many of those products, which were very innovative, were approved on very small patient data sets in phase two. So I, I definitely definitely you know feel. I feel you. I feel what you're saying around the need to start earlier. I guess part of the challenge is that not many commercial leaders have, have launched cell and gene therapies like, like you have, Michael. So do you believe that a, a new, new leadership competencies or capabilities will be required to commercialize these personalized medicines? There's going to be a, should be a huge funnel or a huge need for leaders who understand this and maybe are more willing to be agile and, and, and bring in new competencies to launch cell and gene therapies going forward. What are your thoughts around, around leadership capabilities there? Yeah, Chris, I'll tell you, um, first and foremost, I've, I, I've gotten to work with some really special people. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm only as smart as me, but I've been able to work with some real special people who have, uh, have been very, very responsible for my successes. But, you know, Chris, I wouldn't take it just to cell and gene. Again, I think when you're in a specialization market with a higher bar, to be the quality of voice that the customer, the one or two chosen partners, you need to know your market inside and out and make sure you're delivering on that well in advance. And I think being out prepared or out planned or planning too late is really a way that you never ever are going to realize the full success of your brands. Now you asked a question before when you were talking specifically about gene therapy companies or cell therapy companies, we were talking about the payer landscape. We were talking about some of the novel things we're hearing in, com in, in conferences we're out about different types of payment models, right? Well, Chris, if you're going to be shaping that, you can't start 12 to 18 months in advance. That assumes the infrastructure of the external world is ready to roll as it's been 
for small molecule after small molecule. If you're gonna be negotiating with governments around the world about, hey, we need to change the HTA process or any type of methodology for getting drugs and access to patients, that's gotta start three, four years in advance. Governments don't change things very drastically. So, you know, one of the real exciting things that I, I think I've read recently here is, uh, came out in the news in the last month here, is that I saw that uh, Medicare, uh, CMS, has uh, finally put a DRG in place for CAR-T therapy. That's super exciting. That, that should, you know, that excites you that, you know, maybe we have an opportunity to get more therapies to human beings. Uh, but you did, you did mention this, Chris, right? CAR-T therapies launched in 2017, right? Today's 2020. Yeah. So it just gives you an idea of, you know, if there's going to be companies out there that are thinking about higher logistics, and maybe there is higher logistics we talked about for selling gene therapy companies than a classic small molecule, all the more reason you got to start sooner because you don't know what you don't know. And I definitely don't know everything, Chris. You know, I've, I've gotten to work with, with some great organizations, but, uh, but I'm constantly reading and learning about this space every day. And when I read something like uh, a breakthrough from CMS with a CAR TDRG, I get very excited for patients because I know that means more access for human beings. It helps physicians be able to pick the right therapies when they believe, you know, a CAR T is, is appropriate. Sure. No, I mean, I, that, that, that is exciting news, but it, it does underscore the need to really start thinking about these things early on and, uh, to, you know, to ensure a successful launch. Michael, I hope you're able to, uh, you know, before you find out what your next gig is, and I wish you all the best in, in that journey and, and, and decision that you'll have to make. Um, I hope you're able to get out um, from this shelter at home and uh, with your family, get a nice vacation in before you start your, your new position. But I want to thank you for taking uh, the time today to share your valuable insights about this, about cell and gene therapy and, and personalized medicines in general. And uh, for our listeners out there, you can learn more about Boulder Biotech Launch Specialist Life Science Consulting by checking out our website at www.boulderbiotechlaunchspecialist.com. Also, feel free to contact me directly at chris at boulderbiotechlaunchspecialist.com. I always invite listener feedback around topics you'd like to hear more about. So please uh, you know, send me a note if, if, you have, if you'd like to give some feedback or, or provide some direction on a topic you'd like to hear about. Thank you.